as many of you will know or can attest in our, our normal membership interviews, particularly the more recent uh, interviews or newer members, uh, if you have been in a membership interview with me, you will know that I typically start out with looking at Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and trying to understand why we as Baptists do the whole membership thing the way that we do. Uh, and we start in Matthew 16 because it's there that Jesus first begins to talk about the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then he picks that up and he applies that same authority of the keys of the kingdom of heaven to the local church in Matthew 18, church discipline. Uh, but in Matthew 16, he, he gives Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven only after he asks uh, the disciples two questions. And uh, when they're at Caesarea Philippi, uh, Jesus asks his disciples this in Matthew 16, verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so the disciples say, well, say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say uh, one of the prophets, Jeremiah. And... Jesus then turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds to that by saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this didn't come from your head. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And it's then that he gives uh, the keys to the kingdom to Simon and pronounces uh, the reality that the church is going to be built on him on that rock. Um, Matthew 16 really isn't uh, different than what we see today. Lots of people have lots of ideas about who Jesus is. Um, whether it's Islam saying that, yeah, Jesus was a great prophet, but he was definitely not the Messiah, and he definitely did not die as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. He's not greater than Muhammad. Or it's Mormons who would say that uh, Jesus is the God of this planet. Um, <clears throat> or it's Jews, uh, who would say that uh, Jesus was a Jew, but that is about where it ends with orthodoxy with him. Uh, lots and lots of people, including the atheists on the street and the average American, uh, have ideas about who Jesus is. But what's, what's true for each of us and what's true for every person is that Every person in the world will have to deal with a question, but who do you say that I am? Uh, whether that question is answered correctly uh, in this life or answered correctly on the last day before the, the great white throne, the answer is, will be clear that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, uh, and He is the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Um, <clears throat> And so as we are looking at incarnation and atonement, uh, what we're doing in this particular class is we are simply looking at the doctrine of Christology. Now, Christology, uh, that might sound like a, uh, a big word, and we do like 10-cent words at this church. Uh, but if we're talking about Christology, just like uh, biology or psychology or whatever, it's the study of something. So it's the study of Christ. But more specifically, when we're talking about 
Christology, we're, we're talking about the person and work of Christ. And even more specifically than that, we're looking at who is Jesus and what has Jesus done, particularly in his atoning work. And so we're, I, I wanted to spend just, I mean, we, we do it every Sunday morning in preaching, uh, but I wanted to spend more, more time uh, looking more in depth than what maybe expositional preaching will give you uh, on a Sunday morning to just spend a lot of time looking at who Jesus is and what he's done uh, so that we'll all marvel more at him. Um, but before we get into, okay, let's talk about person-nature distinction. Let's talk about hypostatic union. Let's talk about the extent of the atonement. What's the nature of the atonement? All these things that are good and necessary and right for us to think about and talk about uh, and to be clear on as Christians. Uh, I wanted to, to first take a look at, like, what does our culture say about who Jesus is? Because that question is asked in Matthew 16, and it's asked today. Uh, but then I wanted to take a look at the history of thought or the history of philosophy in Western civilization uh, over the past at least three, four hundred years because it has a lot to do with where we are today, particularly as we think about Jesus. Uh, so Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries do a poll every two years called the State of the Church or State of Theology. Um, yeah, the State of Theology poll. And what they do is they ask um, Americans, uh, both evangelical and non-evangelical uh, people, a series of uh, questions or give a series of statements and survey how they respond to it. And so in 2020, 96% of evangelicals agreed to the statement that uh, Lifeway and Ligonier had that, that said this, there is one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's, it should be 100%, but that's fantastic. That's, that's Orthodox Trinitarian theology. 96% of, even, uh, 96 of evangelicals agreed with the Trinity. Uh, yet 30% of these same people affirmed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God which doesn't make much sense. That is a contradiction with the first statement. And 65% of self-proclaimed evangelicals agreed with the statement that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. That's 65%. So the majority of evangelicals who were, who were surveyed uh, believed uh, what was a heresy in the first and second century and has continued today, Arianism, uh, or in the modern package, it's Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, so there are lots of ideas about who Jesus is, and even by evangelicals, there's a lot of confusion, and there are a lot of wrong and heretical ideas as well. Um, so when we're thinking about who Jesus is, um, we have to ground who Jesus is in the revelation that God has given to us in the scriptures. Uh, and that has been the, the historical view of the church. That is what the church has done 
uh, since its inception at Pentecost. What do the scriptures say about who Jesus is? And so when you look at number two in, in the guide, the history of thought, uh, Charles Taylor uh, is a Canadian scholar, and he's been really good in writing about the history of thought in the West, and he's divided uh, the history of the West into three different area, uh, three different phases: the pre-modern, modern, and post-modern eras. Uh, and in the pre-modern era, he would he would argue that uh, that human thinking or understanding our our understanding of knowledge uh, was grounded in uh, revelation, and that was nearly unanimous. Not everybody was a Christian, but nearly most everybody believed that. We know what we know because of what God has revealed to us. Uh, but in that, in that first blank there, we're going to see that uh, shifts in the West, I mean shift in the world, but we're going to focus on the West because we live in the West. Shifts in the West's epistemology affects everything. So what do I mean by epistemology? Epistemology is just simply... Uh, our study of knowledge or understanding, how do we know what we know? What's the foundation or the basis for knowledge itself? What do we ground knowledge in? What separates fact from mere opinion? And so, to answer the question, what is the foundation or basis for, for knowledge or understanding, the scripture and, and uh, or the, the church and scripture, um, particularly during the pre-modern era, this was nearly unanimous, uh, the scriptures would say God's revelation. God's revelation is the basis for knowledge and understanding. And the scriptures would, would teach us that because of sin, because of our moral rebellion against God in the garden, because of Adam's sin, and the guilt that we've inherited because of the pollution and corruption of sin that has affected each and every person that is born of Adam, uh, we can't see things rightly. We can't see God rightly. We can't see the world rightly. We can't see ourselves rightly. And so what we need is we need a God's eye view of the world and us. We need God to reveal himself to us that we might know him and rightly relate to him. And that's been the history of the scriptures <laughs> since Genesis 2, when God starts speaking to Adam directly. Uh, and that's been the historic view of the church. It's God's revelation. What we know, we know because God has revealed himself. And that's not to say that when you open up the Bible, you find a physics textbook. But God's revelation of himself in the world is the grounding for physics. It's the grounding for science. It's the grounding for math. We can know these things because there is a God who's created the world, ordered in a particular way, preserves it, sustains it, and we can know true things about it because he has revealed himself, especially through Scripture and then generally through creation. Uh, but... And again, this is going to be, I don't want to say simplistic. This is, this is a really, really broad, super zoomed out view of, of, um, of the past three or four hundred years of Western philosophy. Um, but we see that 
in the beginning, uh, maybe the 1600s, mid-1600s to 1800, we move into this time called the Enlightenment. And in the Enlightenment, we see that the revel uh, revelational basis for knowledge is rejected. So, no longer is God's revelation in Scripture uh, perceived or understood or believed to be the basis for knowing anything. Uh, it now shifts. And that shift uh, can be contributed in, in a big way to Rene Descartes, who is a French Roman Catholic and is really the father of modern, uh, father of Western modern philosophy. And Rene Descartes uh, argued in uh, his, I think it was 1637, his work. Uh, discourse, discourse on the method. Uh, he tried to strip away everything uh, that he could possibly doubt in order to try and find some foundation or grounding for what he could know to be true. Uh, and so he's, he's stripping away everything. He's stripping away the world. He's stripping away his body. But at the end of the process of doubting, uh, all the aspects of reality as he understands it, Descartes realized that he could not doubt the fact that he was thinking. And so that's where you get the, the famous cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And that's not just a little clever Latin phrase. That then becomes the basis for epistemology and the understanding of knowledge for the Enlightenment, modernism, and moving into postmodernism. So, Rene Descartes rejects Scripture as the grounding for, for knowing what we know, and what he does is he replaces it with human reason. So, human reason becomes the grounds for epistemology and knowledge. we see that it's no longer Scripture, but the autonomous self or the autonomous individual who becomes the authority or the arbiter in determining objective truth. And this is the idea in the Enlightenment into modernism. And we're going to see, in a, you know, as we talk about it, we're going to see how this plays itself out today. And it's really unquestioned. But in this age of the Enlightenment, the idea was that someone can know objective truth, someone can obtain objective truth uh, in an unbiased way through the use of human reason. You can approach something in an unbiased fashion and come to objective truth. And so, really, uh, if you think about it, this becomes the basis for science, many of the fields of science, for the next several hundred years. The idea that you can pursue scientific inquiry in an unbiased fashion, and you can come to objective truth. That's why, in, in many ways, evolution is settled science. It's not questioned. Why? Because people can approach science and the study of the world and 
how it came to be in an unbiased way. And when you study it in an unbiased way, clearly the evidence tells us that we're billions of years old in this universe, and we are the products of random chance and, and natural mutations. Um, Postmodernism is going to blow that up, uh, but that's the idea in the Enlightenment. Anybody can know and pursue objective truth apart from the Bible because we can approach things in an unbiased fashion through human reason and know truth and discern truth. Uh, and, we, and, we get, and we get here because skepticism reigns. Skepticism is what, is what drove Descartes, and it is what drives uh, philosophy in the West for several hundred years. So this is happening in the mid-1600s, in the mid-late uh, 17th century, a little bit ra uh, later, but around the same time, you see Isaac Newton arguing for a mechanistic view of the universe. So Isaac Newton is a theist. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he's a theist. And he's arguing for a mechanistic view of the universe, one that's, that's governed and ruled by natural laws. And what we're, we're going to see is that as time moves on, and this is going to become really, really important in our understanding of Christology and study of Christology, that there's an increasing rejection of the creator-creature distinction. There's an increasing rejection of God's sovereign providence and sustaining and governing of creation. Um, yeah, Jan? First page. Around the same time, Isaac Newton argues for a mechanistic view of the world. So a mechanistic view is that it's operating kind of like a clock and that things are just working like a mechanical tool. Yeah. The big point is that we're moving away from God's providence and governance in the world and His intimate uh, interaction with His creation and moving more and more uh, to an understanding of God being withdrawn, setting up everything, and then letting it go. So what, what's the result of, of Descartes and the Enlightenment and Immanuel Kant and uh, Isaac Newton? And, I mean, this again, this is, a, this is a very simplified, basic understanding of these things. What's the result? Christian theism is replaced with deism. And that's where you get the idea of the blind uh, clockmaker. How did God create the world? They're still at this point willing to say that God created the world. But God created the world and the universe by winding the universe up like a clock and then letting it go. And he has no meaningful engagement in the world as it is. It's... it's The, these effects are, are pervasive.
So we see, we see the theological effects of deism, a mechanistic view of the world, human reason as the basis for knowledge and understanding. We see it in the American founding fathers and in our culture. What you, what you hear is that it is unreasonable to believe in the miracles of Jesus. It's unreasonable to believe in the miracles of Jesus. That's why Thomas Jefferson had a copy of the Bible where he cut out all the miracles in the New Testament. A rational, reasonable man does not believe in the use of, of miracles. Miracles are a violation of natural law. It's not God that governs and sustains the world. It's natural laws. So it's unreasonable to believe in the miracles of Jesus in part because God is impersonal and uninvolved in the daily affairs of the world. Now, if you have a God that is impersonal and uninvolved in the daily affairs of the world, this view of God is going to radically change your thoughts about the natures of Christ, the deity of Christ in particular. God becoming a man, that's ridiculous. Not only is that miraculous and a violation of natural law, but God doesn't involve himself in the world. He's already set it to go. He doesn't, he doesn't mess with it. This also is going to affect our understanding of the atonement and God's wrath. An impersonal God does not have personal wrath. And so when Jesus is dying on the cross, he's not dying under the personal wrath of God. What is how wrath is now perceived in a deistic worldview? It's perceived as simply the world is, is just a result of the consequences of human actions. Cause and effect, that's God's wrath. Impersonal, God letting people go and letting them endure the, the penalty and the consequences of their own sin. It is not God actively opposed to sinful humanity. Not God's wrath burning against sinners and there needing to be a propitiation that averts His wrath and endures the penalty due for sin. And so what you see in the atonement is, is then you begin to morph into more of like, Jesus, Jesus is the, the moral exemplar. Like, he, he's the moral example for how we're to live. Jesus is a great, great teacher, but he's not God, which is what half of Americans would say in this Lifeway poll. He's a wonderful teacher, great moral man, but he's not God. Why? Because God doesn't get involved in the world. And we see that the Enlightenment shift in thinking ushers in modernism. And we are really, in many ways, uh, modernism has been put to bed. But in many ways, we're, we're, we're still living uh, under the effects of, of modernism. And again, you can, see this, you can see this in the sciences. The idea is, is, that, is that someone who hates God uh, can approach uh, the, the study of the age of the universe in an unbiased fashion and come to objective truth. That's the idea today. The idea is not 
Um, if I assume that a God created the world, as he said, this is how it has to be if his word is going to be true. It's not biblical assumptions that are informing how people are pursuing science. It's unbiblical assumptions. But that's modernism, and we see in modernism, particularly as it relates to the study of the Bible and the pursuit of knowing who Jesus is, modernism and uh, the autonomous self and human reason being the basis for knowledge informs uh, much of biblical interpretation for the past 200 years. And so... <clears throat> We see things begin to change um, significantly from deism uh, to naturalism in 1859. Anybody know what happened in 1859? I'm sure probably Dr. Wood in the back knows. Yes? On the origin of species, Darwin lays the foundation for naturalism in 1859. So Darwin's work on natural selection and evolution demonstrated the ability to explain the universe in naturalistic terms. There was no longer a need for God as creator, preserver, governor of reality. The universe was the result of random chance and biological mutation. Darwin's natural selection reduced the distinction between humanity and animals by arguing that humans were simply products of the evolution of lower animals. This is naturalism. This is, this is the universe without there being a God. And so I, I hope that it, what you see over, over a series of, of 200, 250 years is a significant shift from the, uh, from the mentality of the church and the reformers in particular that, that Scripture is the final authority and the ultimate authority and grounds for knowing anything truly. And there's a slight and subtle shift from that to human reason and the idea that humans can approach anything in an unbiased fashion and no objective truth, you know that that has to assume a certain understanding of sin. Sin hasn't affected my mind, so I can approach things in an unbiased fashion. And then there's a shift with a mechanistic view of, of the universe with Isaac Newton to deism and then deism to naturalism. So over a process of two, 250 years, you see God being jettisoned from knowledge, knowing anything, as well as his involvement in the world as creator. So Darwin lays the foundation for naturalism in 1859, uh, writing on the origin of species. So Darwin's doubt was over the nature of truth. If humans were the result of the evolution of primates, how could one discern truth? If we were just the product of evolution from, from primates. What is truth? How do you discern truth? The brain is a faculty of survival, not something that we can know truth. So Darwinian naturalism argued that truth is a human phenomenon. That's something we created. And then existentialists would argue that life was what you make it. There's no objective meaning to life. And right around the same time, a uh, really famous German guy, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, 
who is basically the father of modern postmodernism. Nietzsche was the father of nihilism. He rejected the idea of objective truth. He's the one who wrote, who wrote God is dead and we have killed him. He rejected the idea of objective truth. He argued that reason is not self-sufficient. Science is not objective. He's correct. And that Christian belief in God was a sign of weakness and cowardice. Man is a law to himself. So Nietzsche argued for a form of nihilism that demanded the active acceptance of the meaninglessness of life. You just needed to accept it. Your life is meaningless. That you needed to uh, actively and self-consciously destroy anything that you didn't believe. And then you needed to exert your beliefs and actions upon others to bend them to your will. So Nietzsche, Nietzsche argued that we, we desire to dominate and conform reality to our minds, and this is called the will to power. This is not in your notes. This is just free. Okay, so it's okay. You don't have to write this down. This is called the will to power. I want you to think about this in terms of like modern transgender, same-sex debates, all, all this kind of stuff when people are, are using words to try and change reality and make you believe it. Nietzsche argued that language was rhetorical, not representational. It didn't actually represent reality as it is. He argued that language was power. He argued that people used the will to power to shape the world and subject others to it by the use of language. Truth was a creation of the philosopher. There's, there's no objective morality that exists because there does not exist a, a God to ground it. That, that, was, that was Nietzsche. Nietzsche and his philosophy ultimately is, is just the, the progression, the natural progression of enlightenment modernistic ideas. Again, if you jettison God and his revelation of the world as the basis for knowing anything, as the grounds, or the authoritative grounds for, for everything that we know in terms of morality and science and who we are and what have you, this is where you go because of sin. And then you get, you, then you get into the postmodern guys. And they're even more consistent uh, with it. But before we get there, during this time of, of modernism, during the time of Nietzsche, 19th century German liberalism, it wasn't just Nietzsche who was uh, philosophically liberal. Almost all of the theology and New Testament scholars were liberal with him you see the rise of what's called the historical critical method. The historical critical method of biblical criticism or biblical interpretation arises in, in the mid-19th century, particularly in Germany. It has absolutely devastating effects on biblical interpretation and Christology. And, and what the historical critical method argued was that there was a distinction between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And what you see in the Bible is the Christ of faith. But he's not the Jesus of history. And what these scholars were able to argue through form criticism and source criticism, 
basically using these historical critical methods, they could pull out from the text who the actual Jesus was, what portions of the Bible were true and what portions of the Bible were not true. And what does that assume? How, how could they do that? If human reason allows us to approach anything in an unbiased fashion, we can know objective truth. And they're saying, we're, we're approaching the text in an unbiased fashion. We're using human reason, and, and this is what we're getting. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of history, is not the same as the Christ who's preached in churches today. So these scholars came to the biblical text with rationalistic, naturalistic, critical assumptions. Atheistic assumptions. And so what they were trying to do with skepticism and methodological doubt was they were trying to get to the true story behind the Gospels. Not trying to get uh, the Gospels that were taught by the apostles who were trying to start a new movement. So you see this distinction um, with no longer viewing the gospel accounts as accounts of history, but rather they're now dis they're discerned as works of faith. They're not actual accounts of history. They are the works of people who ascribe to this faith. So just like Hindu mythologies, uh, uh, mythology, uh, Greek mythology, these are stories that are being created by Christians to communicate certain truths about this Jesus. And this Jesus that they're talking about in these works of faith is not the same as the Jesus of history. So, uh, these German scholars like um, Albert Schweitzer, he writes The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Rudolf Bultmann uh, says that the Gospels need to be demythologized so that we can get to the historical Jesus and the essence of Christianity. And so this Jesus of history is the real Jesus. The Christ of faith is the Jesus of the Bible. Not necessarily the Jesus of the early church creeds, but the Jesus of the Bible. And then you see in, in the 1970s, you see John Hick write The Myth of God Incarnate. And John Hick argued that uh, the idea of God becoming man is mytho uh, mythological. It's myth. It's intended to, to communicate certain spiritual truths. The incarnation is not itself a historical reality. I mean, that says something, right? That says something if the incarnation is not a historical reality. Right? 1 Corinthians 15, if, if Christ is not raised then we are of all men most to be pitied. Jesus' resurrection, if he's not been raised, we're just wasting our time. If the incarnation is, is not a reality, then how do you have active obedience? How do you have the fulfillment of the law? How do you have the passive obedience of Christ that's taking our penal, subs, uh, penal uh, or penalty for sin as our substitute? How do you uh, have... A God who is just and justifier of the one who trusts in Christ Jesus. How do you have a high priest who can sympathize with you and understand your weaknesses and yet is without sin and is a faithful substitute for you? Uh, what John Hick would argue 
uh, is that Chalcedonian Christology, which we'll talk about in probably four weeks, Chalcedonian Christology was an invention of the church. It's not, it's not biblical. It's not a part of the, the myth of, of God incarnate. And so who is Jesus? Uh, John Hick and these other scholars would, would argue basically this. Jesus was just a man approved by God for, for a special role. And that is actually another early church heresy called adoptionism. God just adopted Jesus. He wasn't the divine son, second person of the Trinity, become man. He was just an ordinary man, and he was adopted by God in order to accomplish this redemption. Uh, but there's no two natures, there's no Son of God incarnate, or anything like that. There's nothing new under the sun. I hope you're seeing this. Uh, in the Jesus Seminar, maybe some of you would know, I mean, maybe not. Jesus Seminar in the 80s and 90s. Uh, basically, New Testament scholars around the U.S. would gather uh, a couple of times a year for nearly a decade. And they were their goal was to determine... Uh, of the 500 sayings that were attributed to Jesus, which ones were actually, actually from Jesus, and which ones were invented by the church. So, in, in terms of our thinking, the reality is, is that we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. Right? And so we, we live in a culture that has been imbibing this, the, these ideas for hundreds of years. And we can't think that we've been unaffected by them. Uh, during the 1930s, starting in architecture, you start to see the idea of postmodernism first being applied. But then it's not really until uh, the 1960s that you start to see postmodernism kind of become an idea, like a true thought, and it begins in linguistics. Uh, but basically, postmodernism can be defined as uh, a rejection of meta narratives, or at least a rejection that one can genuinely know a meta narrative. Like, so a meta narrative is an overarching story or overarching. Uh, idea that, that explains the world as we see it. Postmodernism would teach us that there's, there's either really no, there's no meta narrative or that you can't know it truly. Postmodernism rejects objective truth or at least at minimum the idea that objective truth can be known. And postmodernism is the philosophical outworking of the Enlightenment. It's, it's just the slippery slope, that's where you land. Um, postmodernism argues that you cannot get outside of yourself. You can't get outside of yourself in order to know any truth in an objective way. People are products of their culture, time, and language. You can't think about anything, anything, without first thinking about it in terms of your own language. So how in the world, if you're seeing everything through the first-tier order of language, can you know truly something as it is? 
Because already your language has shaped how you perceive truth, if that's what you want to call it. And so what, what postmodernism will argue is that we're all, we're all guilty of ethnocentrism. We, we see the world as we see it because of the culture in which we're raised. And, and the reality is, is that modern, both modernism and postmodernism both communicate certain truths. Modernism communicates there is objective truth to know. It can be known. Postmodernism is correct in saying, and you can't approach anything in an unbiased way. You are encultured people. You are shaped by your culture. You can't help but see the world as Americans. You can't help but see the world through the English language of the American dialect, and more specifically, the Southeastern dialect. The right dialect. That's right. I'm the one that's being recorded. You can't get outside of yourself. Right? And and so and so what what does what does Christianity what does Christianity teach us? Yes. That's true. You're incultured. Of course you see the world in a biased way. In fact, you have been so biased by sin that you can't see anything rightly, truly as it is. There's no aspect of who you are as an image bearer under the corrupting power of sin and under the guilt of Adam that doesn't taint how you see things. It's not that we're as terrible as we could be, praise the Lord, but there's no aspect of who we are that hasn't been affected by sin. And so because we are image bearers, there are some things that we can get right but we can't see objective truth truly as it is. So what do we need? We need God to speak to us. We need a God's eye view of the universe. We need God to show us who we are, show us who He is, so that we might think rightly about everything around us and about Him who is unseen. And in postmodernism, you see the uh, you do you boo, right? Um, your truth is your truth. So in postmodernism, you see the rise of uh, pluralism, uh, which, if we're talking about Christology, is uh, Christ is not unique as a Savior, He's just one of many. And if you, if, you, if you make Jesus just one Savior of many Saviors, then you've lost Jesus entirely. So the rise of postmodernism, its rejection of modernism, and the influence of religious pluralism encourage ideas of social construction, deconstructionism, and inclusivism. What in the world do I mean by that? So, uh, postmodernists would argue that you construct reality uh, as you see it. Who was the first person in, to, to really start communicating this in a mainstream way? We just talked about him. The German guy. Nietzsche. This is the will to power. The will to power through the use of language. You construct reality, and you do that primarily through language. And so what you hear today 
when, you, when someone says, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. And 30 years ago, we would laugh at that person. But today, we'd say that, well, that's not true. And that person would respond, well, that's because you're a cisgender, heteronormative, blah, 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 blah. The argument is, well, you, you don't see me as a woman trapped in a man's body because you've constructed the world to only have two genders, this binary. You've constructed the world to only have male-female and marriage being male-female monogamous for life. That's all a construction on your part. You were the one who built that scaffolding. And deconstructionism is, I, and I'm here to tear it down and to rebuild it. And so that's why, you, you know, you have Matt Walsh on uh, the Dr. Phil show with some transgender folks, right? And he's just pointing out the obvious. Uh, sex cannot be divided from gender. Uh, what it means to be a woman is that you're an adult biological female. And everybody goes crazy on Twitter because he's trying to assert in their mind his construction of the world on them and that's the will to power so the idea of the world is that you need to deconstruct just like Nietzsche said you need to deconstruct rebuild it exert your your authority and your power over people bend them to your will that's the purpose of life why because there is no God who exists. Life is meaningless. We're all the products of random chance and mutations, biological mutations. So live it up. Do what you can because pretty soon we're all going to be having a dirt nap and we're going to cease to exist. And that's nihilism. And that's part of the foundation of postmodernism. Uh, but there are some who are like, no, 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 no. Christianity is true. Christianity is true, but... I do like postmodernism too. And so what you see is a blending, a blending of it. And so with regard to postmodern interpretation of scripture, you, you begin to see that it's not an author who gives meaning to a text, but the reader. The reader gives meaning. Again, this is social construction, deconstructionism. You give meaning to a text. So when you're reading the Bible, it's more important the meaning that you're giving to it rather than the meaning intended by the author. And then, and on top of that, in terms of Christology, you start to see more and more of what you would call inclusivism or inclusivistic Christology. And it, on the surface, it sounds really good. Who doesn't want to be an inclusivist, Right? Uh, typically being exclusive is, uh, sounds a little jerkish. Uh, but basically it's the idea that uh, Jesus saves, and Jesus alone, but Jesus also saves through other religions. And so those people who haven't heard the gospel, when they're being faith, uh, faithful in Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism, the object of their faith is actually Christ. Um, even though they're not aware of it, they're being faithful to him, and so Christ is saving them through these other religions. Uh, so some guys who would argue that, C.S. Lewis was one of those guys. 
who began to flirt with it a bit in the early 20th century. Clark Pinnock, John Sanders, uh, these, these guys would argue that the cross work of Christ is the basis for salvation, but that does not necessarily mean that someone has to have faith in Jesus in order to enjoy uh, the cross of Christ being applied to them. So, at the very, at the very bottom of uh, the uh, left-hand side of page 2, your insert, our context does not exist in a vacuum. Okay, the world and the church are confused. We need to have a right view of Jesus. We need to have a right view of Jesus. We can't be like the Sicinians who, who growing up, Sicinius growing up in, in the height of the Enlightenment and the rejection of Scripture as the foundation for knowledge, growing up in a deistic mechanistic worldview we can't be like Sosinius and his followers who denied the trinity they denied the deity of christ they denied uh penal substitution they rejected the idea that god couldn't simply forgive people and sweep sin under the rug we can't be like the Sosinians. but we do need to recognize that like we're uncultured people we 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 are uh recipients of hundreds of years of uh, philosophy that shaped how we think and view the world And what we need to do is we need to be sharpened by the Scriptures and what Paul would say in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We need to have our minds renewed by the Gospel. We we need to be conformed into the image of Christ. And then we need to proclaim the Christ of the Bible. We We need to proclaim Jesus crucified, resurrected, ascended, reigning, and coming again. Now, how do we do that? All right, so under number three, biblical interpretation. All right, so I'm hoping, I'm hoping that of all of this class, that was the driest and worst part of it. It's necessary. Uh, but the rest of the time, what we're going to be doing is, first, we're going to start with biblical hermeneutics, or the interpretation of Scripture. We're going we're to talk about how do we rightly interpret Scripture. And then next week, we're going to look at the biblical storyline of who Jesus is, how He's presented. And then we're going to spend probably half of next week, and then the week after, looking at the deity of Christ. We'll then transition to the humanity of Christ. Uh, we'll then start looking at the early creeds, Chalcedon, or Nicaea and Chalcedon, how they formulate person-nature distinctions, hypostatic union, communication of attributes, how that then works itself out in all kinds of different theology. Then we'll transition to away from who Jesus is. Once we've established a biblical grounding for who Jesus is, we then can begin to understand what he did. And we'll start looking at the work of Christ. So then we'll start looking at threefold office of Christ. We'll look at prophet, priest, and king. Uh, we'll then look at the biblical uh, data as it relates to the atonement, what Christ has actually done. We'll look a little bit at historical theology and what the church has believed about the atonement. Uh, and then I'll argue that I think the nature and foundation uh, foundational view that we should believe about penal uh, about the atonement is penal substitutionary atonement that grounds everything else, and then we'll close it up, uh, Lord willing, 
uh, on the last week talking about the extent of the atonement. For whom did Christ die? Which is always exciting. Okay, but before we even get to that, we've got to talk about biblical interpretation. Before we jump into that, any questions? Before we, before we get started. What, um, what I want you to see on the back page, under helpful resources, the issues that we're, we're addressing, this is in no way exhaustive. But if you want to delve into a little bit more in Western, uh, Western philosophy, history of philosophy, history of thought, uh, and Christian thinking, there are some helpful resources there. Uh, and then after the hermeneutics, I'll, I'll point you back to some of those. So uh, I would heartily recommend all of the books that are on the back of your bulletin. Otherwise, clearly, I would not have put them there. All right, biblical interpretation. Any questions for you? I asked if there are any questions, then I didn't look up because I didn't really want to answer any of your questions. I'm just teasing. Any questions before we start? Absolutely. Absolutely. For the record, Timothy asked if I would be tweeting the rest of the lesson. So you who are listening to the podcast, that was sarcasm. Okay. Biblical interpretation. All right, so what, what, what's part of the, what's the big problem with the Enlightenment and modernism and postmodernism as it relates to the Bible and biblical interpretation? We talked about all these wrong things that people did, but why did they do those wrong things? Because they pointed with their pen. All right, so many, you, you got you to gotta speak into the microphone. Is it green? Denied the authority of the Bible. Okay, they denied the authority of the Bible. What else? Okay. What else? They established their own reason as the foundation for knowledge. That's a good one because I did spend a lot of time talking about that. <laughs> what gear? They excluded God. That's, that's, that's a really a foundational one. Right? So, <clears throat> in biblical interpretation, uh, the big problem was that the, uh, the folks and the Enlightenment and modernism and uh, those who advocated a historical critical method and biblical interpretation as well as uh, people today who have imbibed um, postmodernism is that they don't read the Bible according to the Bible's own assumptions about itself. And so to read the Bible and say God didn't write this is to say the exact opposite of what the Bible says about itself. So if we're going to interpret the Bible rightly, as Chandler said earlier, we must always read the Bible according to the intentions of the authors. Now I say authors, plural, because in any portion of Scripture there's always at least two authors. Who are those two authors? You have a human author and you have a divine author. 
How do you know how do you know the intentions of the divine author? Because he wrote through the human author. Right? He wrote in he wrote in human language, right? He condescended to us, not just in the incarnation, but in speaking to us by inspiring the biblical authors by by the spirit. So, <clears throat> secondly, we must read the Bible on its own terms and in light of its own categories. That's another way of saying that we have to read the Bible based upon the Bible's own assumptions about itself. Otherwise, you're just not reading the Bible honestly. And I would encourage you always to read everything honestly. Even if you're reading the Quran or the Book of Mormon, read it on its own terms and then see if it makes sense. It's not going to, but read it honestly. Read the Bible on its own terms in light of its own category. So this is important. The Bible teaches us that it is inerrant. It's without error. Why? Because it's God's speech. God's inspired speech. It's infallible. It can't be broken. It can't fail. Jesus himself says that. It's clear. Scholars talk about perspicuity. It's clear. It can be understood. The gospel can be clearly understood by children and believed with simple childlike faith. And yet you can also get multiple PhDs studying the Bible and then really never get anywhere close to scraping, uh, anywhere beyond scraping the surface or certainly not plunging the depths and returning dry. The Bible is unified, and this is going to be really, really, really important for us doing really any kind of theological formulation. Uh, but the Bible as a unity, Old Testament, New Testament, a unified canon, that's going to be so important for us understanding, uh, particularly the intentions of the divine author. So if it's unified... Moses in the book of Genesis is not saying something different than John in the book of Revelation. Now, John might be saying a lot more with greater clarity because Scripture is progressive in its revelation. What I mean by that is not politically progressive. What I mean is in terms of progression of history. Across history, God revealed more and more of himself and his plan to redeem his people. Unlike Islam, the Bible did not fall from the heavens, a completed book. The Quran came to Muhammad as one book, and that's it. The Book of Mormon, 12 golden plates or whatever. But the, the, the scriptures, the Protestant canon, as we understand it, Genesis to Revelation, was written over thousands of years as men were carried along by, by the Spirit, inspired by the Scripture to write exactly that which God wanted, um, <clears throat> wanted them writing. But God didn't do it in such a way that they all, become, they all of a sudden became a robot or like an android or anything like that. God inspired them to write according to their own personalities, according to, to their own human freedom. And that's why there's a significant difference between the, the writings of Paul uh, and the writing of Peter. So Peter will say in 2 Peter, you know, 
Some people twist Paul's writing. And let me just tell you, some of it is hard to understand. But they twist his writings just like they do the other scriptures. So John's Greek is really, really simple. It's not difficult. If you learn some vocab and you learn basic declensions and parsing, you can read 1 John. Not too difficult. Easy to read. Book of Hebrews is another story. A little bit more difficult. Why? Because different human authors. But God inspired them in their own particular ways to write that which he wanted them to write according to their own personalities and gifts and strengths and what have you. That, that is inspiration. Uh, that is inerrancy. That's infallibility. That's perspicuity. That's unity. And at the end of the day, just like I can't remember who said it, at the end of the day, I think it was Scott, Scripture is authoritative. It's the final authority. All things pertain to faith and practice. Uh, so again, Scripture is not a mathematics textbook. But Scripture and the God who revealed himself in Scripture is the basis for mathematics. So, for example, uh, atheistic people, naturalistic people, or people who ascribe to naturalism would say that they can approach the scientific inquiry in an unbiased fashion. What, what, how, how do you learn things in most sciences? By doing a science experiment and, and repeating an experiment under the same conditions in order to disprove a hypothesis, right? But what are you assuming in doing a science experiment over and over and over again under the same conditions? You're assuming that everything is going to stay the same. Everything's constant. Gravity's always going to be the same velocity. And, and what that assumes is something that naturalism doesn't give you. Who says that gravity's always going to work? Well, you've seen it always work in the past, but what is the guarantee that gravity's going to work in the future? We have no guarantee. But the Christian scientist is, well, God created the world. He's ordered it. He governs it. He sustains it. He's revealed himself in the scriptures, revealed himself in it. There is truth that I can know because there is the ultimate truth, God himself, who is behind it all. And I know that if I drop this ball at the same height, it's going to fall to the ground at the same rate in the same amount of time when I'm staying in the same place on earth. Why? Because God has created the world to function a particular way with gravity. God's not a slave to the quote-unquote laws that he has given to, the, uh, to this universe. Uh, it's not a mechanistic view of the world. It's not that he stepped back. He's continually sustaining and preserving. That's Jesus in Hebrews 1. Sustaining the universe by the word of his power. That includes gravity. Right? But we can do these things and expect consistency and the same things happening under the same conditions. Why? Because there's a God behind it all. And a God who is consistent. Who brings, who brings order out of chaos. Right? Naturalism doesn't give you that. Only Christian theism gives you that. You can't approach anything in an unbiased fashion. 
So how should we, how should we approach things? With the way that God sees it. Because he's the one who created it. And that's what scripture gives us. It's the final authority. It's inerrant, it's infallible, it's clear, it's unified. Since the Bible is unified from Old Testament to New Testament, we must do the hard work of biblical theology. What is biblical theology? Theology of the whole Bible? Yeah, so uh, biblical theology is, is highlighting uh, that God has revealed himself through a historical story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, and he's doing these things to save his people from their sins. Uh, and there is the only way that we have any kind of way of actually doing biblical theology, which I'm going to argue uh, must be done if you're going to come to write systematic theology conclusions. You must do the hard work of biblical theology if you are going to understand Christ. So what we're going to have, uh, systematic theology on the other hand, would be, what does the Bible say about any particular issue? What does the Bible say about age of the earth? Or what does the Bible say uh, about the extent of the atonement? So if we're going to be doing uh, systematic theology according to the scriptures, then what we must have at the foundation of our theologizing must be biblical theology and exegesis. Exegesis is just studying the text in order to discern the meaning of, of the biblical text. Okay, the, these two are inter, high, strongly interrelated. I don't, I don't, you can't do one without the other. Okay, but then on top of that, that's where you build your systematic theology conclusions. And all of you are systematicians. Okay, so don't don't let that. Don't let the one guy in here who has the PhD make you believe that you're not a systematic theologian, okay? You're just not in scholarship. So you're all systematic theologians because you're all every day discerning, how should I live in light of what Scripture has said about this? How should I live with my husband? How should I live with my wife? What does authority look like in the church? What, how should we sing as a, as a church? What should the church order look like? What does the Bible say about the millennium? Blah, 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 whatever. Those are all systematic theology conclusions, but we can't come to write systematic theology conclusions unless we first do the hard work of biblical theology and exegesis. Now, we don't stop with, with systematic theology conclusions, okay? So, we can't do... We can't do right pastoral theology... We can't do biblical counseling. I know that you can't see this. This is really for my benefit, not yours. We can't do biblical or we can't do pastoral theology. We can't do biblical counseling. We can't do one anothering. 
truly and faithfully according to scriptures unless we've first done biblical theology and exegesis then we've come to write systematic theology conclusions and then those conclusions inform how do I pastor people? How do I counsel this brother or sister in this particular? How do I, how do I help them think about this situation in the light of who they are in Christ? All of that assumes so much. How do I, how do I love one another? How do I love this brother who is in this particular sin? You better believe biblical theology and exegesis and systematic theology are informing how you do one another. You just don't know it. And that's got to be what we do here. So since the Bible is unified from Old Testament, New Testament, since there is a unified story because there's one divine author, we can actually do biblical theology. And biblical theology must inform systematic theology conclusions, particularly on the doctrine of Christ. So what I'm going to be talking about here, I'm really just laying a foundation uh, for what we're going to be doing in the weeks to come, okay? If any of you were in, um, which I know a few of you were in the um, Christ from beginning to end discipleship class, this is going to be, this is going to be repeat, okay? And the good news is, is that I didn't understand it the first seven times I heard it, and so you probably don't either, and so we're just going to keep talking about it, uh, and then we're going to keep practicing these things the rest of the class. So there are three horizons of biblical interpretation. Okay, I, honestly, I can't remember what the popular level terminology is. I, was, I just didn't look it up. Um, uh, yeah, there's a, <laughs> maybe there's a part of me probably needing to care more. But the three horizons of biblical interpretation. Um, getting this, I think this is really, really helpful. Getting this from Richard Lentz and his book, Fabric of Theology. Okay, so if you want to, like, hey, how do I do theology? Fabric of Theology by Richard Lentz is a really, really good resource. Uh, but he says that there are three horizons to biblical, of uh, biblical interpretation. Okay, is that big enough, Robin? All right, okay. First, first is, uh, I think it was called close context. Is that right? Close, right? Okay, that's not what the nerds call it. So the textual context. Let's just call it, we'll say textual or close, okay? What do I mean by the textual horizon of interpretation? What I mean by this is that when we interpret Isaiah 49, we interpret Isaiah 49 in the context of Isaiah. We're trying to understand what is Isaiah saying in Isaiah 49, and we're just going to read Isaiah 49 and Lord in part of the larger uh, book of Isaiah, okay? We want to do word studies, and we want all this kind of stuff, but at the end of the day, the closed textual context is Isaiah's writing this book. Isaiah has something to say, and Isaiah 49 is not going to say something different than Isaiah 30 and Isaiah 1. Why? Because Scripture is inerrant. It's inspired by the Spirit of God. It's infallible. So I can assume that within one book, the author is saying the same thing. Okay? So that's textual or close horizon. Anytime you're reading your Bible at home in your own personal study, what you need to be doing, first and foremost, is, okay, I'm reading John 10. I need to, I need to understand what John 10 is saying according to John. Well, what's he saying? 
And so that's where, we hear, that's where you, you'll hear grammatical, historical exegesis. What grammar is he using? What, what, what's the historical context? Like those are the things that we're, we're thinking through at this first stage of biblical interpretation. Okay? The second, I'm trying to remember which one I called it. The, it may be that. I, I, I felt like it was continuing, but I went with a different term. But we'll just throw continuing in there as well. So, but that's not what the nerds call it. The nerds call it epochal. Um, I, I'm calling it another thing, and then we'll throw in... We'll, continuing. It's all, it all means the same thing. Whatever term helps you to remember what truth I'm communicating, I don't care. I mean, if, if you want to graduate with an MDiv from these classes, you need to understand these ones. But... Uh, Epochal, covenantal, or continuing horizon of biblical interpretation. What do I mean by that? So, same example, we're looking at Isaiah 49. So, we've done the hard work up front of, okay, what's Isaiah 49 saying in the context of Isaiah? Okay, it's talking about the servant of the Lord. Servant of the Lord is it's not the first instance where Isaiah's been talking about the servant of the Lord. So, who is Isaiah, who's Isaiah talking about with the servant? Well, he's already identified him as Israel. Uh, and in the rest of Isaiah, this servant of the Lord is, is like uh, kind of divine also, and also kind of a man. So that's interesting. That's Isaiah 49 in the context of Isaiah. Well, then we, we zoom out, and we read Isaiah 49 in light of its epoch, or its age in redemptive history, or in light of its covenantal age or in light of its continuing horizon. So what do I mean by that? We're reading Isaiah 49 in light of Genesis to Isaiah. Okay, so Isaiah 49 is talking about the suffering servant. In Isaiah, that is Israel. And yet in Isaiah 49... This Israel suffering servant is distinct from Israel because in Isaiah 49, 6, Israel is going to save Israel. So, unless, unless there's a, a, a contradiction in the Scriptures, which, again, if we're assuming what Scripture assumes about itself, that can't happen. The problem's with me and fail, my failure to understand it. Israel is distinct. The suffering servant Israel is an individual who is saving the nation of Israel from his or her sins. And it's also the case in Isaiah 49 that this servant of the Lord, Israel, is going to save the nations. Okay, well, that's, that's, Israel, that's Isaiah. What's the covenantal context? Well, we've, we've got creation, right? Creation, sin, or creation, fall. Okay, so there's been Adam, and then there's been the covenant through Noah, and then there's been the covenant to Abraham, and it's through Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. So Jew and Gentile are going to be blessed in Isaiah 49, and Abrahamic covenant is saying it's the offspring of Abraham who's going to be blessing the nations. Then we need to understand, okay, this suffering servant is the, is the offspring of Abraham. But it's not just that. Fast forward to Israel. Israel is the old covenant community of, of God. Okay? They don't keep the law like they're supposed to because they can't. They're miserable failures, just like we would be. In the, same, in the same position. But, 
and they need to be saved from their sins. And so we have this whole structure, Levitical sacrificial system, high priesthood, all these things that are now informing, okay, when the suffering servant is saving Israel from their sins, Isaiah's writing it as an Israelite who has the sacrificial system and the priesthood. So saving them has to be tied to that. But it's not just the Israelite covenant. Who else had a covenant? David, 2 Samuel 7. The offspring of David will sit on the throne forever. In the book of Isaiah, it is the new David, the offspring of David, who's going to be the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, wonderful counselor, everlasting father. And what can the king of any particular nation say of himself? The king of Israel can say, I am Israel. So if we're understanding the suffering servant as an individual who is identified as Israel, he can't be the nation, but he can be the king. And so this suffering servant is a son of Adam, son of Noah. He's, an, he's, the, he's the son of Abraham, through whom the nations are going to be blessed. He's an Israelite in the context of an atoning sacrificial system, priesthood, prophets, and kings. He's the son of David. And Isaiah is saying, yeah, he is also God. That's the apocryphal context. And if it just stopped there, we'd be like, wow, he's going to be a great guy <laughs> when he comes. Man, pretty awesome. Uh, and this is all stuff that you're just doing in your own study. Uh, this isn't what I'm doing as, I mean, I am doing as a pastor and preaching, but like this is, what you're, this is how you're supposed to read the Bible. And so, last, last horizon is canonical, or complete horizon. Okay, what is it, what is this? Well, it's in light of the entire canon of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, right? So, it's really here that we begin to really be able to make biblical theological connections to Jesus. Okay, so Isaiah 49, 6, and it's talking about Israel saving Israel and bringing Jacob back to him and being a blessing to the nations. Then we understand, okay, he's, a, he's, he's of Adam, he's a man. He's a son of Abraham through whom the nations will be blessed. He's an Israelite born into old covenant systems uh, where God's forgiveness is going to be secured by a penal substitute offered, a perfect penal substitute offered by a high priest. And this guy is going to be the son of David. He's going to be the king. Psalm 110, David's already said that this Lord, the, his Lord is going to be his son, but he's going to be greater than him, and the king is going to be the priest. And now when the gospels come and all the blind guys are saying, save me, help me, son of David, like is, that's what exactly what they should be saying. Because he is. And then when Jesus is saved out of Egypt, and Matthew is saying, and this was to fulfill, out of Egypt I called my son. Like, that's when we start to understand, ah, God has been writing an entire story from Genesis to Revelation. And we need to be interpreting it rightly. But we can't just jump straight here. We've got to start here. Understand Isaiah in light of Isaiah. Understand Isaiah in light of his own context. And then uh, his canonical, or, or not his canonical, his covenantal context. And then understanding Isaiah in light of the entire canon, because God is the one who's inspiring Isaiah to write what he's writing. 
Isaiah may not have, Isaiah didn't know that his name was going to be Jesus. But he knew what the Redeemer was going to look like. He was going to do this. He was going to bear his people's sins. He was going to be despised. He was going to be a man of sorrows, crushed for his people, and yet he would see his offspring. He would be the true Israel. He would secure the forgiveness of sins. He would usher in the new creation. He would be the David that David was supposed to be. All these things, Isaiah knew these things. He just couldn't tell you his name was going to be Jesus and that he was going to come in the first century. But we stand on this side of the cross. And so we can do this work. And we got to do it as it relates to like having a right understanding of the doctrine of Christ. Who he is and what he's done. Okay, so at this stage, just in a few minutes, we're going to talk about biblical topology. We can't do it tonight just because it's, we're tight on time and we're going to be doing it for the rest of the class. But biblical topology is essentially biblical interpretation at the canonical level. Okay? So you're going to see topology, not something interpretation. Not allegorical interpretation. It's not allegorical interpretation. What is allegorical interpretation? No, that's not like Pilgrim's Progress. That's allegorical as a genre. It's not allegorical interpretation. What is allegorical interpretation? I don't know about that. Okay, allegorical interpretation is giving a spiritual meaning to the text that is divorced from the intentions of the author, uh, and you're, you're not doing grammatical historical exegesis. Okay, for example, very famous one, the early church fathers did a little bit too much allegorical interpretation. Spiritual meaning that's divorced from the plain meaning of the text. It's not according to the intention of the author, okay? We will talk about Pilgrim's Progress in just a second. Allegorical interpretation is not according to the intention of the author unless it's allegory. Uh, so, popular biblical example is that when Rahab was tying that scarlet cord on her window on the wall of Jericho, that was the blood of Jesus pointing forward false it was not it was a scarlet cord and that's what it was there there is nothing in the text and nothing repeated in the course of the canon that would at all communicate that the meaning of that scarlet cord was intended to point to christ does that story point to christ of course it does because all of scripture finds its yes and amen and fulfillment in jesus but it's not allegorical interpretation we do want to give a right interpretation to allegory like Pilgrim's Progress, is an allegory. It's intended for you to interpret it as allegory. When you read Joshua, that is historical narrative. That is the genre of that particular book of the Bible. Joshua is not writing it in such a way that it's to be interpreted as allegory. He's telling you a story of what actually happened, and he wants you to interpret it as such not give some spiritual meaning that's totally divorced from the text. So, allegorical interpretation is a no-no. 
Typology is not allegorical interpretation, and so we're going to understand why we look at the five things that I think are essential for a right view of biblical typology. First, biblical typology is grounded in the text. It's grounded in the text. It's intended by the authors. Secondly, it's grounded in history, specifically redemptive history. Third, this is important. This is what really helps us from not going allegorical. There's repetition, and that's repetition across the canon. Okay, when Paul's talking about Adam as a type of Christ in Romans 5, that is not the first time that the Bible has talked about Adam being a type. Paul is just picking up what Moses has already laid down repeatedly. There's repetition. Fourth, there's escalation. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there's escalation uh, from type to type. So let's just, we're going to talk about Adam eventually. Uh, Adam topology. Adam pointing to Noah, pointing to Abraham, pointing to Israel, pointing to David. There's really not much escalation from here to here. There's a little bit of escalation here because all of a sudden there's greater clarity about who's coming and how. And then there's more clarity here. There's the most escalation here. But then all of a sudden, really truly, the greatest escalation or maybe the only escalation in, in a particular biblical type is going to be from that type to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. So when we're talking about biblical topology, this, when we're talking about topology, this is a biblical term. Okay, it's tupas. Tupas. Romans 5, book of Hebrews, type. So type is pointing to anti-type, anti-type, the fulfillment. Okay, in biblical topology, Christ is always going to be the fulfillment of every biblical type. Every, every promise of God finds us yes and amen. All the law pointed forward to Christ. Biblical types, whether it's the Exodus, Adam, uh, the Levitical sacrificial system, Passover lamb, Davidic king, whatever is going to point to and find its fulfillment in Jesus. He's the anti-type, and it escalates to him. All right, last, biblical topology is a person, place, thing, or event. A person, like Adam. Adam is a type of Christ. Place, promised land, or Eden, God's place. It's not an accident that Eden is lost, but then the promised land of Israel is cast in the same language of Eden. And then the new creation is cast in light of the language of Eden. And that Jesus is talked about as bringing the new creation, bringing us out of exile, bringing us into the promised land. Because that, that's, that's a type. The holy city, Jerusalem, is a type, finds its fulfillment in Christ. It could be a thing like the Passover lamb. Or it could be an event like the Exodus. Okay, biblical topology can be a person, place, thing, or event. But it's grounded in the text of Scripture. It's grounded in redemptive history. It's repeated throughout the canon. And there's escalation as it points to Christ. And at the end of the day, biblical topology, final, final point, 
Jesus Christ is the focal point, telos, goal, end, center of Scripture. So if we get Scripture wrong, we're going to get Jesus wrong. Okay? So, that's foundation. Foundation of thought, uh, foundation of thinking about Jesus, and then, and then just basics of biblical interpretation. And what I hope to do throughout the remainder of, Lord willing, the 11 weeks of person and work of Christ is for us to do biblical interpretation, biblical theology, coming to right conclusions about Jesus and who He is and what He's done, and then thinking about, okay, what does that mean for me? How should I respond? And how should we live in the local church? Okay, any, any questions about that? I know that was a fire hose, and it's intended to be. All right, uh, next week. I've got the reading structured in such a way that you're reading Steve Wellam teaching what I just taught you. So hopefully, what you're reading in chapters 1 and 2, the introduction and the chapters 1 and 2 of God the Son Incarnate, for next week, that's pages 25 to 106, so about 80 pages, you know, 10, 15 pages a day, and you'll finish it. It's totally doable. Don't be babies about it. Uh, page, pages 25 to 106, he's going he's gonna to address everything that I just addressed, but in greater detail.